Church, James chapter four, uh, five, I'm sorry, James chapter five. Starting in verse one, we're gonna read down to verse six. We'll read this together, church, and then we'll take a moment to pray and ask the Lord to speak to us through a, through a challenging text this morning. Starting in verse one, James says this. It says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we lean into the text this morning, God, that as there's a lot of very direct very harsh language, God, that we can know, God, as you speak these things into our lives, as you call us to evaluate the things that we see as value, God, the places that we are putting our investments of ourselves, of our gifts, of our abilities, God, Lord, that your intentions are to mold us, God, your intentions are to redirect us. Father, I pray for humility this morning in myself, Lord, as I present the text. God, I pray for humility for our faith family here that are gathered this morning, God, that we would allow these words to sink into us. God, we would allow them to challenge us, uh, Lord, in the ways we need to be challenged. Father, God, don't allow us to be so prideful that we would ever think that there's any moment that we're in your word that doesn't apply to us. Father, let us see what you have for us this morning. God, we love you. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. So church, this morning we'll continue in our series, Working from Victory. You know, and last week we identified our, our, the, uh, where our focus is and how that focus affects how we move through life, how we function through the things the Lord is trying to do and trying to show us and how that affects our worries, how that affects our anxieties. And, and so this morning it's kind of, that, uh, of a natural turn, I feel like, a very connected, cohesive thought uh, from where we were last week as we move into this point where James is be, being very direct and very intentional on how he's talking about our investments. That not only where are we seeking, as we talked about last week, where are we looking after, where are the things that we're, uh, that we're resting on that define us and how we're uh, responding and how we're planning But now he's moving more to a little more of a personal place for us where I believe and where I see where we'll see this morning is where James is challenging our investments. And I'm not only speaking of financial investments, I'm speaking even more so of our personal investments, of our gifts, of our resources, of our time, of who we are as people and individuals in the local church or in our families or in our communities. And so this morning, if I could sum everything up, it would be into this idea that the focus of our investments will reveal our dependence. You know, the focus of our investments will reveal 
our dependence. That we will see that wherever we're pouring ourselves out, where either uh, wherever we're investing our time, wherever we're investing our resources or our, or our intentions or our goals, that we will see that depending on where those things are, it will reveal what we're depending on. And then whatever we're depending on, it will begin to show us if we've found what we're looking for or if we're being constantly told we need more and more and more and more. You know, uh, I, I was doing a little research and reading this week, and uh, you know, in, in a study done in 2018, and, and leading up to that point, it's kind of increased every year, but do, a study done in 2018 said that we consume an average of 11 hours of media a day. You know, and that includes TV, uh, radio, uh, smartphone, tablets, gaming, all these things that we consume on average 11 hours a day of media. And within that media consumption, we are exposed to, within that 11 hours a day, we are exposed to 4,000 to 10,000 ads a day. You know, and so what does that mean? Why is that significant? Well, within the 11 hours that we're consuming media, some type of media, that we're being exposed to 4,000 to 10,000 ads a day. And what are the focus of ads? What are the intentions on ads? Well, the intentions of ads are to sell us on something, right? And the way that they sell us on something is communicating to us that there is a need that we have. Or that whatever we do have is not good enough anymore and that there's an upgrade for it, right? Or, 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 or kind of putting a celebrity face to it or showing us that this is, this is the goal, this is the intention, this is where you should be. And so their, their intentions of the ads is to keep us pursuing something, to keep us drawing from something, to keep us getting better. I mean, our, our phones are a prime example of that. I mean, we, we will buy a phone, and within a year and a half, what have they done? They've come out with a new one, right? And so they put it before you to say, hey, look, you have this one, but we've made it easy. We've got this process where, where you can obtain the next one. You know, it may cost you a little something, but at least you'll have the new and improved. You know, and there's so many things like that. You know, there's even this thing called micro-targeted advertisement. You know, this, this idea where what we search, where we live, or who, who we, even who we are friends with on social media, they can use that information. If you didn't know this, websites can be paid to be given that information to advertising companies who use that information and specify ads for you based off of where you live, what you search for, the people you're friends with, the things you show you're interested in, they're tracking those things to make ads specifically for you. I mean, and I don't know if you've ever had this conversation before, but me and my wife have had the conversation, I swear that Facebook is listening to me, right? I mean, it's scary. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about something or we'll, you know, do something, look at something, Google something, whatever. Well, then the next moment, there's like an ad for some kind of shirt, that a random shirt that we talked about. I'm like, seriously? Like, they have to be listening to me. But what they say, they say they're not listening to you, but you never know. But they say that what it is, is this algorithm that is so sophisticated, it can seem as if it's listening to our conversations because it's taking in so much information about who we are and where we are and what we seem to need. You know, and in our world, if we're honest, there's a lot of our motivations, there's a lot of our pursuits that are within this realm of need, of what we think we need, or what we're driven by. You know, and so what James is telling, you know, the thing about, uh, you know, this time period in the Middle East is they were driven by a lot of the same things we are, we are driven by today. 
They were driven by prestige. They were driven by social status. They were driven by appearance. They were driven by satisfaction and, 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 and happiness and, and fulfillment. They were driven by all those same things. And so when James is communicating this, he's speaking into this very idea when, of, a, of an individual or of a culture of a people who are dependent on these things that are forever changing, that are ever being put before us and told to us that you need more, that you need better, that you need something different. And so what James is going to be telling us this morning is that these things that we see as beautiful, these things that we see as valuable, these things that we are dependent on are actually slowly poisoning us and they're slowly stripping us of anything of of joy or happiness that that God is trying to do within us. And so which brings us into the text this morning in James chapter 5, verse 1. We'll see as he begins to walk through this. And how he starts in verse 1 is he says this, Come now, you rich. Now immediately, maybe you hear that and you say, Well, that's not me because I'm not rich. Right? I I mean, so the question we have to ask ourselves is, well, who is rich? What does it mean to be rich? You know, because it's not, the thing we need to understand is to be rich by our standards is not necessarily a bad thing. God does not condemn those who have. You know, he actually says in Proverbs 10, 22, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow with it. So it's not wrong to have. You know, we define through through the Google machine when I search, you know, what does it mean to be rich? This is what it said. It says we define rich as having an average of two point four million dollars. That's how we define rich. I can tell you right now, I'll never see that. Maybe just on TV or in fake bills, but never in real life. You know, but, but in reality, this is based on some type of cultural understanding of what denotes rich. You know, we talked about this Wednesday night that we had this idea of even for us as Americans of American prosperity or the American dream, what it looks like to have, you know, the, the, that there's this pursuit of, of, of happiness that we should be pursuing. And that pursuit leads us to more, to gather, to earn or to have a, abundance of certain things. And so we denoted a certain maybe money amount as being rich. But the thing that we forget is that every single one of us in this room, I believe it, every single one of us in this room is richer than 98% of the world. We forget that. We forget that if you have one vehicle at your house, you're immediately richer than the majority of the world. That if you've eaten, uh, if you've eaten meat in the last week, then you've taken in, you've spent more on money than most of the world around us. You know, and I heard this this week, and I thought it was really clever that we, if we could really understand it, that every one of us is somebody's Bill Gates. That there is someone that you are richer than. So we immediately, because, you know, we're, we're able to come into this place and because we make a little bit of money and because we're able to clothe our, our backs and, and have a home to live in and vehicles to drive in and food to eat, we have immediately been placed into this place of having an abundance because there's someone under us who doesn't have that abundance. And so we are the rich. Every one of us in here are rich in some way, shape, or form. Maybe not money, but every one of us are rich in some way, shape, or form. And and what James wants us to see is that it's not wrong to have. So we shouldn't feel ashamed because we have. But what he does want us to focus on is what we have and how we value and use what we have. 
that are we driven by those things? Are we motivated by those things? Are those things the very things that define us? And if we were to lose those things, we would lose our value. We would lose our identity. We would lose who we are. And so then he continues on and he begins to show us where the fault is in what we have and how what we have can become a problem for us. And uh, in verse 3 of James chapter 5, he says, you have laid up treasure. And this word laid up can also be defined and maybe in some of your other translations it says the word hoarded. You have hoarded your treasures. You have laid up your treasures. You have put away. You know, in this, we've talked about this several times that the book of James uh, mirrors uh, a lot, in a lot of ways the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus preached in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And so if you can j- turn to Matthew chapter 6 with me or you can just read it on the screen, it'll be there too. But he mirrors and kind of communicates this same idea when we hear in Matthew chapter 6, we get the command. And then in James chapter 5, he's saying, you have done this where Jesus says here, don't do this. In James, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, he begins to teach on this same idea Jesus does. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21, he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. You know, and, um, and, and I love the idea of this focus here because, you know, last week when we, when we jumped back to Matthew chapter 6, we talked about seeking. We talked about seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And, and right here, whenever Matthew, in Matthew chapter 6, when he says that when we lay up treasures, we lay up treasures in heaven, in the kingdom of God. Because the thing is, when our investment is in the kingdom of God, the enemy has no place there. He has no authority there. And so when our lives are invested in the earthly temporary, things, he says, he says, that's a place where the door cannot lock, that the enemy will always have the right to slip in because the Bible tells us that the enemy is the God of this age. He is the the, the Lord of this age, of this realm that we live in. And so he has free reign to attack our lives and and try to steal things from us. And so if we're investing in the kingdom of earth, if we're investing in the temporary, it says that the enemy will always have a place to be able to come in and take from us. But he tells us the investments that we make into God's kingdom to his heavenly kingdom, the treasures we lay up there. He says they're eternal. He says that there's nothing that the enemy can do to take those things away. The fact that we got to celebrate with Levi this morning, you know what the enemy can do? The enemy can't take that away from him. The enemy can't take the joy that comes from the salvation that he has in Jesus Christ from him. You know what the enemy can take? his Xbox from him, his PlayStation. The enemy can take his clothes from him. The enemy can take things, you know, put us in terrible situations that we feel like we're in distress or and destroy things around us. But he can't take away the eternal things that he's laid before us. And so what he's telling us there is he's, he's calling us to this idea to understand where our investments are. You know, and this is a, a, a challenge. And, and it, it can be a humbling uh, kind of r- r- understanding that we can come to, but do you want to know what you can do to understand where your investments and where the things are that you're dependent on and that are most important to you are? Print your bank statement and take some time and go through it. That's a challenging thing to do. You know, I can remember moments in our life, you know, and when, when we had first gotten married and kind of functioning and doing things, and when we would look and we'd say, 
It is unbelievable how much money we've spent on eating out this month. Or, you know, back in the day before they had Spotify, I would buy music. And at the end of the year or something, you'd look and you'd see, uh, I would look and I would, be, I would see how much money I spent on music. That you're just all these things. You know, if we would take our bank statements and just print them out and start going through them, it would blow our minds. And, but reveal to us the things that we find is valuable. The things that we find is worth our investments. How we spend shows what we value and depend on. You know, we use our wealth to create safety and to buffer and to avoid difficulties and potential uncertainties around us. But in reality, the wealth and the, the stuff that we get and we pull into our lives, a lot of times those things end up being the source of our anxiety. They end up being the source of our worry. They end up being the source of our difficulties. And, uh, and, and the, it's not that having is wrong, but it's our intentions behind it. It's our intentions because he says there, he says in Matthew chapter 6, he says that where your treasures are, there is your heart, your heart will be also. And so for us, we can know that if our investments are on ourselves, you know, if our treasures are, are, are you know, when it says laid up or hoarded, that means we're focusing our attention on ourselves. We're wanting to just collect for ourselves. We're wanting to get as much as we can because we're seeking this lifestyle. And he continues on in verse 5 of, of James 5, and he says this. He says that you've done this in, uh, in verse 5. He says, and you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You know this word luxury meaning comfort? That we're, we're consumed by our pursuit of pleasure? And he's talking that when you've laid up treasure... You've laid up uh, the, uh, earthly treasure, this temporary stuff, investing in the temporary, pouring ourselves into the temporary, that we're seeking after this luxury, we're seeking after this comfort. And then he, not only luxury, but you've lived in self-indulgence. You know, and this idea of self-indulgence is so opposite of what God calls us to because this idea of self-indulgence means that it is without self-denial. That it is a life that becomes out of control because we're just giving of ourselves what we want. And in reality, that's our culture today, is that the culture tells us that if you want it, you should take it and you should just have it because it's how you feel, it's what makes you happy, and that's what you indulge in. That there's no regard for self-denial, that there's no place for us to ever tell ourselves no. But it's in, it's in pushing away what, what we desire, where we find true satisfaction in the things that the Lord is offering us. You know, because it's even in self it's even in self-indulgence that we can be lacking. Paul tells Timothy this in 1 Timothy 5, 6. He says, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. That even if we are just pouring into ourselves whatever we can get our hands on, if we are just grabbing at whatever the world offers us in riches or in goods or in whatever it might be, just trying to fill the spaces of our life, trying to find identity, trying to find satisfaction, trying to find purpose and fulfillment in whatever we can get from the world, that it can tell, he's telling us, he says, you can be doing all those things and still be dead on the inside. And honestly, this is the place that we find ourselves because 
those things do not satisfy us. And we'll, we'll, we'll figure this out as we move further on. And then he continues on in verse 5 and he says, You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Because what he's telling us, he's telling us that if we are living, if we are dependent on what we can gather in this world, if we are investing our time, our money, our resources in the things of this world, in the systems of this world, and, and what we're doing to ourselves is he says we're just fattening ourselves up. You know, and, and I love because it's kind of this illustration of a cow who is oblivious of their slaughter. Right? I mean, I've never owned livestock like this, but I imagine that you want them to be bulky so that there's more to them whenever you slaughter them, right? And so for, for a cow, in this sense, they're oblivious to their slaughter as they're fattened up, and they just feast. They just feast on whatever they can. They just get a hold of whatever's around them, whatever they can come to, and whatever is, uh, is put in front of them. And so what James is calling us to, he's pulling us away from this idea, listen, just because it's there, don't take part in it. Just because you can get a hold of it, that doesn't mean that you should have it or that you need it. He calls us to this idea of self-denial. He calls us to be pushing away things that lead us to vices. And specifically, he's talking about the places where we invest, our, our, our resources, our talents, our gifts, our money. 1 Timothy 6.10, it says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know, and, and, and it's this idea that we have to always remember that, that it is money itself is not evil, but it's the vices that the pursuit of money can lead us to. And I love that at the end of that verse, he says that they have pierced themselves on many pangs, that God has not put these things before us to, to trip us up. But it's in our empty pursuit of those things. It's trying to find joy and satisfaction and fulfillment in those things that we lead ourselves into these damaging places, into these places that hurt us. Because the reality is all these things that we try to gain, you know, the American dream, money, success, fulfillment. In verses 2 and 3, he tells us, and James, he said, listen, they're temporary. And when we have laid those things up, they're not going to last us. Verse 2 and 3, he says that they've rotted, that they're moth-eaten, that they're corroded. Listen, the, the temporal nature of earthly riches is real. I mean, we see it. There's always something new. There's always something to replace this or that. And it's constantly drawing us into this idea of pursuit. Because as they fade in appearance, as he speaks up there, this is very appearance-based things. In our day, it's not so much appearance that changes, but it's relevance of things, Right? Relevance of, of, of our stuff. I mean, in reality, even, even relevance of, of, of Christianity has become an issue where it's just, it's, it's not relevant anymore. It's outdated. It doesn't have a place in culture or in my life anymore because it doesn't fit into this idea of pursuit. You know, because the ads in front of us, the things that are placed in front of us, and not just in media, but just the ads that are placed just from from existence, just from, from, from our fleshly desires that are put before us, telling us that we need more, that we need better, that we need improved. You know, we've talked about it before, that the grass is greener on the other side, that there's something better waiting for me and that I deserve it. You know, and we are driven towards what we think we need, putting our trust and hope in the wrong things, and we pay for it. And when something is always fading, when something is always corroding, we are always chasing and searching. 
You know, and so when our hope and our trust is in whatever we can gain, whatever we can hold on to, whatever we can build on this earth for ourselves, we're always going to be constantly searching because it's always going to be constantly corroding or fading away. You know, and so we're going to live our lives searching and running after because we are made in the image of God. Like we talked about last week, we are image bearers of God. And because we are made in the image of God, we are eternal beings. We are going to exist in eternity one way or the other. And because we are eternal beings, nothing temporary will ever satisfy us. So then he continues on and he says, not only are these things that we invest in separate from the Lord, you know, because that's what he's drawing us into. He's wanting us to see the importance of our investments. He's wanting us to see the importance of where we've spent our time. He's wanting us to see the importance of where we're putting our dependence. And he brings us to this place and he says, not only are these temporary things fading away, not only are these temporary things, these things of the earth that we see as valuable or as important, or are they not only corroding or fading away, but he also says that these very things are evidence against you and that they will lead to your flesh being eaten away. He says they will eat away your flesh like fire. So not only are they fading away and testifying to the position of our hearts, but it is eating away at us like poison, a slow burn of a flame. You know, when it says eat your flesh like fire, that these things that we think are offering us protection or fulfillment, they're taking away, you know, that they're taking away our pains, they're taking away our worries, are actually fueling those things. You know, that these things that we're trying to bring into our life to find satisfaction separate from the Lord or separate from our fulfillment and, and, and what God has provided for us, He tells us that these things will be like a fire that eat away at us. And that those things that we're bringing in or that we see as important are more valuable than what the Lord Jesus has for us. He says it's fuel for those flames. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor during the time of the Second World War. And, uh, and, and during that time, he was, uh, you know, at the end of his life, just an amazing guy. Really, there's some really great stuff about him. I and mean, I've talked about him before just because I, I, he, he's just got such an interesting life. But, but in his time, he just poured into people and he wanted people to see the value in the Lord Jesus, even in this time of suffering. And, uh, you know, he would, uh, he would eventually lose his life because he would be a part of a group of people who were setting out to assassinate Hitler. And, uh, and, and he would lose his life because of that. But in the meantime, as he would be writing, these things, this is what he said about earthly goods. You know, thinking of a man who would have spent time in concentration camps and just all these difficult situations, this is what he had to say about earthly goods. He says, earthly goods deceive the human heart into believing that they, are, that they give it security and that they give it freedom from worry. But in truth, they are what cause anxiety. You know, the goods of the world, the things that we think that we need to find joy and satisfaction. The world has discipled us to see what is valuable and, and important and worth our investments. You know, and how we are discipled will affect. You know, what we are, you know, we're, we are all indoctrinated in some way, shape, or form. You know, we always talk about this in regards to our kids. If we're not indoctrinating our kids with the way that, that then giving them the, the worldviews that, that we know that they need, then the world is going to indoctrinate them into the way the culture sees things and functions and things. And so it's our responsibility to be doing those things. But it not only affects the way that we are and how we're indoctrinated and how we decide to invest, but it also affects the way that we treat other people. And, and continuing on in those verses, in verse 4, he says, you have kept back by fraud 
You know, and this word fraud meaning deception for personal gain. He said, and he goes into this big spill about how you've kept back from laborers who deserve wages, that you've kept back from harvesters, and that you have, it even says in that verse, in verse 4, he says that they are crying out against you, even referencing Genesis 4.10 with Cain and Abel, when he says that the blood of your brother is crying out against you, that you have oppressed him, that you have caused harm to him. And so he says, when, we're, when our focus is on ourselves, on the luxuries of our own self, and our own comforts, and our own self, indulgence, he says it will always lead to oppression. It will always lead to us viewing others as lesser than us because we're setting out to accomplish what I need to accomplish for me and there's always going to be collateral damage when we're at the center of our world because we're always going to have to use other people as stepping stones to get where we need to be to gain what we want. To gain what we feel like we need, to gain what we feel like we deserve. You know, keeping what we have, uh, the, the, you know, and all of us are gifted. All of us have resources, the ability to fulfill uh, based on our needs and our earnings. And, and, and what he's saying here is that you've kept back by fraud. You've acted as if you can't or if you don't. But it's really all a deception for your own personal gains. Listen, every one of us, and like I said, this is not just a financial thing. This is a gifting thing or, or, or a resources thing or, or a time thing where we are withholding. When there are people around us in desperate need of what we have to offer them, maybe that's in the context of, the, of our church, maybe that's within relationships. Listen, one-sided relation, or relationships become one-sided when an individual within that relationship becomes self-indulgent. Because, and, and what happens is whenever we are self-indulgent in our relationships, our spouse is going to be that collateral damage in the midst of it. Because we're focused on ourselves. It's inevitable. There's no way to navigate a relationship selfishly and the other part of that relationship not become collateral damage, not be damaged or hurt or stepped over in the midst of our journey or our pursuit of more or our pursuit of gathering or our pursuit of getting as much as we can to find fulfillment. You know, where our treasure is, there our heart is also. And so if we have kept what we have to give, like I said, it's not just money. It's our resources. It's our time. It's our gifts. If we have kept those within ourselves, then it shows that our heart is focused on ourselves, that our heart is with us, that it's not with anyone else. It's not with the Lord, that it's on me. You know, inevitably, when we value what we gain over how we give, it leads to oppressive and neglectful actions. And that's what James is trying to show us this morning in that, is that as we see what we see as value and hold value in those things, that it moves us into this place where not only are we constantly searching and having to constantly grab for and reach for and chase after, but it's also going to lead us to these points of oppression and neglect of people around us that could benefit from what we have to offer, whether that's in the context of a local church in our community or even as simply in our families, that our kids or our spouses are being neglected or even oppressed by our selfishness. And so why does this matter this morning as we kind of wrap it up? You know, this matters because the pursuit of our riches is right where the enemy wants us. The pursuit of earthly riches is right where the enemy wants us because he knows he can continue to put ads before us and not literal ads, but uh, putting these desires before us, putting these motivations before us that will constantly keep us seeking, constantly keep us chasing after, constantly keep us reaching for, keeping us on the hunt rather than ever being satisfied and finding godly contentment in the eternal things that God has provided for us. 
Every one of us has eternal gifts right now that we are either enjoying or that we are neglecting to enjoy. Because we're in pursuit, we're on the hunt. Because of the ads, because of the desires the enemy has put before us. You know, and, and I think this is just, just thinking on this and reading this is just so much truth in this phrase right here. But how the enemy attacks us, church, is making us dissatisfied and worried about everything to the point that we can't enjoy anything. That we can't enjoy anything about our life because the enemy has convinced us that it's not good enough. That there's more to be gotten. That there's more to seek after. That there's more to chase after and be, 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 be gathering. And in that, and always being dissatisfied and worried about everything, we, we, we never enjoy anything. We never enjoy anything. And in that, we see the work of the enemy coming to be. John 10.10, 10, he says, the thief comes only to kill and to steal and destroy. You know, and so, uh, you know, I, I love this idea that whatever, and, and, and thinking about it and really seeing it play out in our own lives and in my own life, that whatever the enemy can't kill, he wants to steal from us. You know, if the enemy sees that he can't destroy or obliterate something in our life, he's going to lean in and try to steal from us. And so what is he trying to steal from us? He's trying to steal our joy from those things and, and, what, and, you know, and trying to make that very practical. What kind of joy? What kind of fulfillment? What kind of satisfaction or purpose is he trying to steal? He's trying to lean into our lives and he's going to steal our joy that we have from the Lord. He's going to try to steal our joy that we have in our spouse. He's going to try to steal uh, the happiness and fulfillment that we find in our work for Jesus. I mean, how how many people do you know that just are so disgusted with the church or with Christianity in general because they've been disappointed because the enemy's got into their life and he's deceived them about something? Maybe he's used weak, broken people to disappoint them or to, to draw them away. You know, there's people in my, my life that I've had conversation after conversation with about the atrocities that Christianity has, has done over the, over the decades, over the centuries. And it's absolutely true. Christianity has been faulty in so many ways, not because of God, though, but because of people. And it's because of that, that that individuals, that people push against the idea of resting in the goodness and have, finding godly contentment in what God offers us. But it's within that. That the enemy is stealing from us the very thing that defines us as Christians and the very thing that gives us joy and satisfaction. And if we are finding ourselves there, we are investing in the wrong places. Church, if we are constantly feeling like we are searching or needing or pursuing something, constantly feeling like we're missing out, constantly feeling out like we're being robbed of something, it's because we're more than likely we are investing in a place that the enemy has the right to steal from us, that he's drawing from us. 1 Timothy 6.17, Paul tells Timothy this. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Church, God is faithful. He is intentional and he is provisional in all the ways that we desperately need it. You know what? And it may look differently, like I said. The riches of God's kingdom may not be the financial riches that we think we need or deserve. 
You know, the riches of God's kingdom may not be that house that we think we need. The riches of God's kingdom may not be that spouse that we think that we're searching for as a single person. You know, the riches of God's kingdom are eternal and they're so much bigger than anything that we can grab or gravitate towards in this world. And and even contentment or even emotional, whatever it might be, God says, he says, I have so much for you. And if you're missing it, it's because you're investing in places that the enemy has the right to steal from you. And he says, if you seek my kingdom and my righteousness, it is there. The enemy has no authority that he can't steal the internal, the eternal investments that you have in my kingdom. That when you have treated people with kindness and love and joy, says the, the, the satisfaction that comes from that, the enemy cannot steal from you. That if you have invested in your children the eternity of God's kingdom and the gospel, he says the enemy has no place to gather that from them in their lives. That if you're investing love and selflessness and, and giving of yourself, submitting of yourself as a servant to your spouse in true love and true satisfaction and true joy, he says the enemy cannot take that away from you. Only times he can steal those things from us is if we are investing in the earthly. If we become self-indulgent, seeking our own luxuries into things that will fade away and leave us. He says that's the only place where the enemy can steal from us. And so what do we do? Church, I just want to give you one challenge this morning for all of us and me included in this. That we would be good stewards of our lives. That we would be good stewards of our lives. That, you know... Understanding that being a steward and putting your hope in aren't the same thing. That with our resources, with our talents, with our finances, with our time, whatever it might be, that we would not be putting our hopes in those things, but we would be using what God has given us. You know, if you have, then it is a blessing from God that you have. But don't put your hope in what you have. Don't put your hope in your job because you may lose your job tomorrow. Don't put your hope in your vehicle because you may get in, in, a, in a wreck and, and lose that. You know, don't put your hope in some type of status because you may lose that from moment to moment. But he tells us if we would steward our lives by first understanding this church that our hope has to be that Christ has me and that he will hold me no matter what. And that my stewardship of my resources, my time, my finances is me taking what he has allowed me to have and not putting my hope in it, but utilizing it appropriately. That I would be using my gifts, my energy, my resources given to me to participate and to not spectate in the growth of God's kingdom. That I would be intentional about showing love. That I would be intentional about being a cheerful giver. You know, seeing people in need around us in our lives and, 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 and maybe even making a place in our budgets to just give to somebody randomly, pay for somebody's groceries, buy a tank of gas for somebody, pay for the person behind you in the, in the, in the line at a, a fast food restaurant. You know, just being intentional about being stewards of what we have for the betterment of God's kingdom and for the edification and the growth of others in our lives. To show that love and that goodness to people. Let's bow our heads and pray together this morning. Father, I thank you for your goodness. God, I thank you for your love and your mercy on us. Father God, I just pray. I pray for each and every one of us, Lord, even more so myself included. God, that we would be good stewards of what you've given us. God, that we would be good stewards with the life that you've given us as Christians. God, that you tell us if we are believers this morning, we are alive. 
We've been given a power. We have been given your Holy Spirit, the very power that raised Jesus from the dead, dwells within us this morning. Father God, I pray that we steward that well. Pray, Lord, I pray that we would not hoard it up and just keep it to ourselves. God, lay it up. God, I pray that we would not use it to invest in earthly things. God, I pray that we would not be driven by, dependent on the things that we can gather, the money we can make, the status we can have. God, but I pray that we would steward what you've given us to further your kingdom. God, to participate in the work that you set out to do among us. Lord, in our lives as individuals. God, in our families, in our relationships, in our church here, God, in our community. God, allow us to be stewards of our gifts. God, allow us to be stewards of our talents. God, let us not keep our talents to ourselves. Lord, the things that we're good at in here this morning, God, let us not keep those things to ourselves, but utilize what you've given us. Utilizing the things we enjoy. Utilizing the things we're good at. Lord, to further your kingdom. To bring happiness and joy through the gospel into someone's life. To be a, 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 Lord, to be a brother or sister to someone here this morning. Or to someone in our life, someone around us that needs our time. God needs our resources. God needs our patience. Needs our gentleness. God, let us not be driven by money. God, let us not be driven by desires for stuff. God, let us, most of all, not be driven by desire for selfish indulgences, self-centeredness, or the luxuries of comfort. God, that you call us, Lord, to an exciting life where we're stewarding our gifts for your glory. God, that it, all, it may cost us at times, but the gain that we have from giving of ourselves is greater than anything we could purchase in this world. Father, I pray we would be a church that lives and moves and is motivated in that way. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' holy name.